welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. In today's episode, we're focusing on Turk, a nonprofit made up of math and science educators and researchers dedicated to moving STEM learning forward. Turk has many different programs and projects, but we're going to focus on INFACT. As you'll hear in this episode, INFACT stands for Including Neurodiversity in Foundational and Applied Computational Thinking. We're interviewing Jody Asbel Clark in this episode all about this project and how INFACT focuses on designing, developing, and implementing an inclusive computational thinking curriculum for grades three through eight. We talk about the different supports embedded into this program, including different modalities for learning computational thinking. Jody and I also talk about neurodiversity in STEM as a whole. So let's check it out. Hello and welcome back to the Assembly and Inclusion podcast. I'm here today with Jody Asbel Clark from Turk, which is an independent research-based nonprofit organization. Jody is a senior leader and the director of Edge at Turk. There are so many different components of that organization, but we're really going to focus today on INFACT, which stands for including neurodiversity in foundational and applied computational thinking. So Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. I'm excited to talk all about the different things you have going on. But first, to start us off, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your background, and your experiences? Well, first of all, I've been at Turk for almost 30 years, conducting research mostly funded by the National Science Foundation and a little bit from the United States Department of Education, which I'll talk about. Before that, briefly, I was a computer programmer on the first 25 missions of the U.S. Space Shuttle. And I was a classroom teacher in a laboratory high school for a few years, but mostly I have been at Turk and doing research and lead a team of about 10 educators, educational designers, researchers, cognitive psychologists, and we study how kids learn. You have such a wide array of experiences. So that's really fascinating kind of how you came into your role at Turk. I know there's a lot of different components to Turk, but can you tell us specifically about the development of the INFACT project? The INFACT project is funded by the U.S. Department of Ed, their EIR program, Education Innovation Research, I think it stands for. And it's an early phase project to investigate how we can serve high needs learners, in this case, neurodivergent learners, which I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, and how we can engage them in STEM problem solving. And what we are looking at specifically is an area of STEM problem solving called computational thinking, which is the foundational practices and ideas behind programming and robotics and other even daily activities of how you solve problems replicate. The focus on neurodivergence, well, I'll back up a little and say I am the director of EDGE, which is the Educational Gaming Environments Group. And for the last 10 or 12 years, we've been looking at how digital games 
can be used to not only support STEM learning, but also to measure STEM learning. And we look at the data that we can get in backend logs of digital games, and we use some machine learning algorithms and stuff like that to figure out learning. What we found is what we hope to find, which is we were reaching learners that often got lost and slipped through the cracks in traditional education. So that led us to look more closely at that, particularly in 2015, Turk got the rights back to an old game they created called Zumbinis. And I hope that many of your listeners have heard about Zumbinis. And if not, it is Z-O-O-M-B-I-N-I-S. Go look it up, Google it, and you won't be sorry. I was not on the design team of Zumbinis. I worked at Turk at the time, but it was Scott Osterweil and Chris Hancock who were the genius behind this game. That was in the 1990s. It won a ton of awards. It sold a million copies. And it is still the best learning game I've ever played. It's a logical puzzle solving game. And my team was fortunate enough to get funding for the National Science Foundation to go look at how kids build computational thinking practices in the game. Computational thinking, you can boil it down to like problem decomposition, breaking big problems down into smaller problems, pattern recognition, seeing patterns between problems, action, which is like generalizing those solutions so that you can apply them to many different settings, and algorithm design, developing routines and procedures to be able to solve those problems. So we saw all of that in kids playing Zumbinis. It's it's designed for kids eight years old and up. And so we were looking at grades three through eight. We went in and we wanted to look at computational thinking. And what happened was the teachers we were working with said, oh my gosh, these kids that never have achieved in other academic areas are becoming the class leaders. They're solving all the problems first and the other kids want to know how they're doing it. And they're becoming like the go-to help desk in the class. And it's changing how other kids look at them. It's changing how they see themselves. And we were like, wow, we heard this over and over again. We're like, what is this connection between computational thinking and neurodivergent kids, kids who might have an IEP or just might not excel in class and are becoming leaders here? The other thing that happened is that special education teachers in the same schools were coming up and saying, wow, these ideas, problem decomposition, pattern recognition, abstraction, algorithm design, these are exactly the problem-solving skills that we try to get all our special ed kids to do. We just never had these words for them before. So that got us really curious. And we wrote some more grants, including the IMFACT project, which, as you said, is including neurodiversity in foundational and applied computational thinking. And it's funded by the Department of Ed. We went out and we developed a whole bunch of computational thinking activities for grades three through eight robotics, coding, games, offline activities, all kinds of things. And we put specific supports in those activities for executive function. And what we do in our research is we seek out classes that are inclusive, meaning they have at least around 20% of their kids with individual education plans, somewhere around that or more. But we don't use that information in our research typically. 
it's not that we don't trust it as much as we know there's inequities in how the diagnosis and who can access the assessments. And also it's complicated. Sometimes certain groups are overdiagnosed, sometimes underdiagnosed, and it just, it gets complicated. And then also we are not looking specifically at autism or ADHD or one of these categories, partially because many of the people we work with have multiple of them or are undiagnosed. So we go right to the source and say, we're not really looking at the labels as much as what do you actually do on an executive function test? And by that, we mean your working memory, your attention, cognitive flexibility, rule switching, some things like that. So we got this grant to go and say, build this material, put the supports for executive function into the materials, and then go look at how kids do as compared to other materials. And then also, how do neurodivergent learners do with those materials compared to the general population? And what we found in a sample of classes, grades three through five, is that, first of all, MFAC did do significantly better than other computational thinking programs. And the kids in the lower half of our EF tests had dramatic in- improvement with MFAC. So this was all done during the time of COVID. We didn't get as many teachers as we want. We got results, but you know, they're not with the greatest greatest number of people and stuff like that. So we're going back out there and uh, we're being encouraged to propose to the next phase of this project where we can try to figure out who it works for, under what settings and how we can scale it up and help more people with it. So we're actually looking for district partners and school partners right now. I'm sure by the end of the podcast, we'll talk about how to get in touch, but we would love partners to help us continue this research. Oh, I'm sure a lot of teachers would love to be involved with that. Because even as I was just looking at the different elements of computational thinking, like you had mentioned earlier, I didn't even think about that. That is exactly those things that I was trying to teach the students in my research room when I was a special ed teacher. Like those skills were the basically another term for what we were trying to teach them. And sometimes it fell under their executive functioning goals. And I'm like, oh, that would have been so much better of a way to approach it with my students than saying like, okay, we're going to work on this executive functioning goal, but like you're going to work on, you know, problem decomposition and things like that. Or you're going to play this game and through it, we're going to go, Hey, look how you just decomposed that problem. How would you do that in this other context? It's a really fun curriculum. I mean, the team has developed so many great activities, things like one is a Lego barrier game, we call it, and you put a barrier between two students and they each have identical sets of Lego. One makes a structure and then has to instruct the person behind the barrier how to make that exact same structure or the structure can be made and there's lots of different ways to do it. But the idea is that you have to have very clear commands. What do you mean by up? What do you mean by, you know, around the right? What do you mean right on top, red on top of blue? Like all those things and working out that very clear communication is something you have to do when you're learning programming or any kind of computational task, but you also have to do it in daily life. It's also some of the social emotional learning that comes along with that because sometimes It is the 
a person who communicates differently that is actually able to come up with the clearest, most concise commands. And that systematic, very rigid thinking becomes actually a superpower when you're in a programming environment or debugging environment. So I could definitely see that as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to some of my students who were on the quieter side and they would excel in something like that because they were so direct in what they wanted to say and so concise and so like on target. Whereas my students maybe who were a little more loquacious were, you know, weren't able to be as clear and direct. But they're your idea generators and they're the ones that are going, hey, let's do this, let's do that. And you want them too. They're your innovators. Yes. So what other types of computational thinking practices or activities besides that example are involved? And I know there's a lot of them. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is that what teachers really liked about impact in our studies is the get up and go activities. And they're actually physical instantiations of some of the puzzles in Zumbinis or the robotics maze. So when we start them, instead of jumping right into a robot and coding on a tablet, we would give them blocks of pseudocode or they can make up their own commands and they can guide each other across the room with the commands. And when I went to visit a class doing this activity, it was during lockdown when the kids were not allowed to get up from the desk, but the teacher was. So the kids used the command cards to direct the teacher and the teacher followed the commands and the kids figured out they could direct her right to the door, right out the door, into the hall and close the door behind her. So anyway, but that physical instantiation and the acting things out, first of all, is yet another way for kids to experience the computational thinking. Sometimes it is the way in for some kids. And what the teacher said, they love getting their kids up and moving and off the computer. And they loved having computational thinking that wasn't on the computer. And so we're really extending out that part of our project in the next phase. That's really exciting because that is something I I say that, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying it as an educational technology person, but getting away from the screen, sometimes to teach those skills, that's so beneficial for the students because they need to move around A and B, not being in front of the screen all the time. I mean, some students have a hang up about being behind the screen anyway. So I think embedding those hands-on activities is really important. Right. Another one we do is knitting. This wouldn't be for every class because not everybody knows how to knit, but if there were, you know, knitting group or something, the amount of computational thinking and pattern recognition and algorithm design in knitting is amazing. And so we apply that to origami, knitting, other crafts. We have activities where they dissect a song or a dance like baby shark (laughs) and baby shark is perfect there's a lot of repeat loops you can code baby shark with repeat loops with variables when you're switching in and out the name and you can even make a function out of it and so we use examples like that to set up the conceptual ideas of computational thinking and coding before they ever even see a keyboard you know That's a great way to teach. I never thought about doing that with song, but there is such a repetition. And now I'm thinking about, we used to use, I'm not an expert coder. So a lot of my coding with my students was drag and drop, but I'm like, oh, you drag and drop and you do the loop and you repeat again as you go through the rest of the song. But that's a really great way to teach that skill. Yeah, yeah. And and then you can do it with dance. 
really well too. It's always trying to put like, which dance are you going to put into a curriculum that in two years, somebody still could be using, but something like, and I'm going to use a really outdated example, Macarena or Hokey Pokey or something, you can break it down into, again, repeats and variables and all those things. And so we'll do an example that's, you know, the Hokey Pokey or something like that, but then have kids go find their own and be able to, in the act of breaking it down and coding a dance step and then giving it to somebody else to have to enact the dance step is fun. Oh, now I'm jealous. I'm not in the classroom anymore because my <laughs> students were super into dancing, you know, social media, you know, the, the dance trends. So that would have been perfect. They would have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the multiple modalities to try to get them to understand the computational thinking. That's the overall strategies of InFact is multiple modalities. It, it does two things. One is it gives everybody hopefully a hook. And the second is it gives everybody exposure to the concept in multiple ways so that they can see the connections and it reinforces the concept. The other thing is multiple entry points into an activity. And this is particularly important in something like coding or something that might be a little more complex. I'll use an example of coding. One student may really do better if the screen is blank and they can start coding. Another student might do much better if they have some chunks already started and that they can rearrange. And another student feel much more comfortable starting with debugging somebody else's code. All three of those are valid entry points into coding and you can end up in the same place from all of them. So we really try to give those different entry points and let everybody have an avenue towards success. I could see how that would make all students feel successful in being able to get involved. And also doing the same activities. We differentiate without you're doing this version, you know, that looks like it's could be quote unquote dumbed down. We really try to avoid that. You're all doing the same activity. You're just starting it in different places. I appreciate that the most, I think, because that's such a big issue with differentiation. People are like, oh, I'm going to give you less. And it's like, no, you're supposed to be doing exactly what in fact is doing and providing three different appropriate avenues that they could pick from. So I, I like that that's the approach you take instead of making it quote unquote easier, yeah, right, <laughs> they can right. pick the one that's more appropriate for how they learn best. And, and it's, what it's easier for one person could be much harder for the other and vice versa. That's true. That's a good point. I did notice that on the in fact project page, it says that in fact, specifically, and I'm, I'm going to quote it, recognizes each learner brings a unique set of assets and deficits to every learning situation. How has the project made sure that a variety of different strengths and weaknesses were incorporated in designing the instructional materials and resources? So first of all, we pick the discipline computational thinking very specifically. There's a fair bit of research coming out about unique and extraordinary talents of neurodivergent learnings in the area of detailed pattern recognition, systematic thinking, idea generation, abstraction and connecting ideas. So, so we picked an area that was very rich for talents to be revealed. The other thing is it, and there is some research showing that computational tasks, computers, coding, robotics, games, many neurodivergent learners have a preference for them. Then we went in and said, okay, how do we do this with a universal design philosophy as much as we can? 
And how do we support the known challenges for those same talented learners? And that's where we came to executive function and said, if we can really do a good job supporting a learner's executive function, we're giving them the best chance to thrive in this discipline where they have good opportunity to thrive. And then on top of that, we layered all these things we've been talking about, about multiple entry points and choice. There's like games about sports and music and art and current events. You know, there's all kinds of things in there to hopefully give something that somebody will be interested in, and also chances to adapt the activities to another interest area. Oh, that's good. Because mm -hmm. I mean, we all know students have so many various areas of interest. So that's great exactly. that can be adapted as well. I really appreciate all of the thought that went into the design of it specifically, like thinking about those strengths, looking at the research, thinking about the barriers, embedding in those supports for the barriers. It's good instructional practice. And before I forget, I should say that we did not do this in a vacuum. We have partners from University of Florida, Florida State University, Looking Glass Ventures, University of Maryland. We are a very collaborative process, and many of the PIs from those universities have done research that is fed into this. It wasn't all us. <laughs> it was a nice collaborative effort across the yes. board and by a lot of different people. Yes. <laughs> so we had talked a little bit about how you had observed some of the teachers during the pandemic who were utilizing the resources that are available through, uh, in fact, but in terms of how they're integrating into their classroom, is it they're adopting it as a curriculum? Are they doing it as more of a unit? Are they embedding it periodically throughout the year? How have teachers been utilizing this program. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, so first of all, it was the pandemic. So we've studied about 30 teachers. Hopefully in the next, we'll have hundreds of teachers and we'll be able to say much more on in general terms. But I know that we studied teachers that were in a one-room schoolhouse with grades. We were in highly neurodivergent classrooms with 80 to 100%. But mostly we were in inclusive classrooms where about 20 to 30 to 40% neurodivergent learners. We did find our sweet spot with the current set of materials we have is grades four and five. We, we implemented in three through eight. We studied grades three through five. You know, three, we still have some work to do to make it the on-ramp accessible for them. And six through eight, we still have some work to do to make it cool enough for them. <laughs> it's hard to do a five-year grade span in one first time out. So we're calling the materials we're putting out now version one, <laughs> and we will keep going. So the teachers that we studied, we were unfortunately not be able to go into the classes, but our independent research team interviewed every teacher three to four times and also got, had a questionnaire for the comparison classes. And so what we found is, as I said, a variety of settings, teachers often ranged from really liking the opportunity of differentiation and really wanting that. But a lot of them really said, I just need a set of materials to be able to do for this time period. So we're coming up with some more sort of like default scripts to oh. so that teachers could have just one. And we're really doing some more road mapping for teachers because that's needed. But there is this question about where it's used. And I 
A lot of CT has been at the upper elementary tech ed kind of course, or, you know, media course, the, that kind of, and that would be a generalist who met every kid in the school. So we have worked with those teachers. We also have general ed teachers in grade four, three, four, five, who are, you know, in their classroom able to just say, we're going to do this and I'm going to pull in my math outcomes and I'm going to pull in my science outcomes or all these things through that. I think one trick that we're still having that we would be love to talk to districts about is how best to integrate into the middle school disciplinary structure, because it's not just computer science, it's integrated, but the science teacher or the math teacher doesn't necessarily have a chunk of time to just open up and put computational thinking in there. But these standards are all coming down the pike and we want to be in that conversation of how in fact can help solve these problems and not be another layer on top of them. You know, it is interdisciplinary. It's about problem solving. So it's interdisciplinary and it's inclusive. So I know there's a home for it. Oh, there's definitely a space for it. I think I mean, and, and particularly as the standards are coming, we have teachers coming to us going, okay, so now I want to make my whole K through eight learning trajectory around this. And so we're like, great, we'll help. We're not necessarily there yet. And the learning trajectory we create for, you know, Virginia is not going to be the same one we're going to create for, you know, Arkansas or whatever. It'll be better as a personal relationship with districts. And I think the other thing we found is, when we've worked in districts before, when we were working at the teacher level and trying to spread out, they might already have another initiative, like a school district we work with was implementing the workshop model in math PD, which is great. And we could have been part of the workshop model had we known, but instead we ended up being sort of like a competing force. And that's the last thing anybody needs right now. <laughs> more people pulling more people in more directions, right? <laughs> That's true. I see it probably being on a district by district basis. Cause even like I was in one district during the pandemic and I'm in a different district now. And it's interesting to see the two different approaches to teaching computer science related skills. And that's the same state. So even just between the two districts. Right. So I'm sure that sitting down and working with teachers is probably, and districts individually is probably the easiest way, but it definitely has a home (laughs) in schools, I'm sure. So I did want to ask, I noticed that the research team is looking to explore different forms of assessment and things like that. What areas of future expansion is in fact looking to take? I know you had mentioned like some of the revamping to do with the middle school curriculum specifically, and then the grade three, but what other areas are you looking to expand into? So one big area is in professional development with teachers, because this intersection, well, this intersection between computational thinking and executive function, we're interested in exploring in a bunch of different ways. One is the research to really understand what are these connections and how can we foster them? But also how do we educate teachers to see those connections and make those connections? Because those are two new concepts to many teachers. And so we have a grant pending from the NSF, we hope to actually look at how to engage teachers in that journey. And you mentioned assessment. There are no standard computational thinking assessments out there. And there's certainly 
no assessments that are designed for neurodivergent learners. Some of the decent assessments that are coming out are very text heavy, very, um, you know, word problem-y and stuff like that. So we're experimenting on a number of fronts of how to develop those assessments. And then we have some exploratory research to look at other ways that we could measure not only learning, but the affect that goes along with learning, like frustration and boredom and engagement and so some of my colleagues on my team have used eye tracking and, and actually some of our colleagues from Florida State and University of Florida are involved with this too, to look at where they're focusing and then also facial recognition to look at the emotions that are going along with those learning. I think there's a lot of potential for that if you have a setup that you can have good equipment in, you know, in a clinical way. But once we wanted to move it to like the camera on a Chromebook, which is what you actually you have in class. The technology is not fine enough to really be able to say anything yet, but we have teams ready to leap on it when it is. Other projects that we do that are not in fact are also related to virtual reality and augmented reality and different ways to support neurodivergent learners and co-design with neurodivergent learners on those. There's so many other components to everything going on at Turk. I was looking through the projects. I was like overwhelmed by all of the work getting done. I did want to ask you just to jump more now generally to your work with just neurodiversity in STEM mm-hmm. in general. So I just was curious, what are your personal biggest takeaways from your research and your experience within the area of neurodiversity in STEM? So the most interesting thing that's happened in that front for me was this past year, I had a sabbatical and was able to go write a book on this topic. And in that, I interviewed about 100 people, many of them in STEM companies, big companies, EY, which is Ernst Young and Microsoft and SAP and and people who've been um, doing research in this area. And the companies are like, of course we want neurodivergent learners. Like that is our competitive advantage. That was a term they kept on using. Neurodiversity is our competitive advantage. And when I started the interviews, I sort of expected to hear, oh, you know, the CEO's nephew has autism or, you know, like some personal story, which was fine. And, uh, you know, but I really expected it to be more of a philanthropic venture. And they kind of laughed at me when I asked about that. And they're like, no, we want the talent. And so what I found out that is like since 2004, there have been people directly recruiting. It started with people, autistic people to do debugging and quality assurance and software, very repetitive tasks, but very systematic and highly detailed. And then companies said, oh, wait, they're really good workers, who else is out there and start going, oh, we have idea generators and we have, you know, connectors. And, and then it seems they found that once they had all this neurodiversity on their teams, not only did they get the talents that they were hoping for, the diverse perspectives in and of themselves, all different people looking at things made the products better. So they were finding that their productivity and their product and creativity, everything was rising. And then when they had to adapt their hiring programs and their management programs to be able to have integrated teams, 
they had to do things like write agenda for before and after meetings with really clear communication and notes because that's how they supported some of their neurodivergent learners or they had to have you know really well facilitated conversations so that everybody had a chance and nobody ran too long in conversation and all their teams came back and said wow this is really great management it had no idea you know nothing to do with whether they were neurodivergent or not so i just thought that's all happened in industry and where's our education system and that made me really sad to see that the education system was focused on fixing kids when this is the talent that's wanted out there so and i don't mean that the end goal is always to get a job in a stem company but to reveal those potentials whatever they are and so i think maybe that is my perspective that i just really hope that something i do helps shift educators to see the potential on so many levels on so many levels for good inclusive stem problem solving that's such a great example and i'm like i know nobody can see me but i'm like nodding profusely as you're going through that cuz it it makes me so happy that companies have been doing that for a while and see the benefits of it but then yeah i think about my experience as a teacher and oh this kid can't sit still and doesn't stop talking they're they're not going to do anything and i'm like well that's that's terrible why are we not looking at the strength that that student is bringing like look at all of their ideas they were thinking about things and new ways of doing things that i wasn't thinking about it, it's so hard because i wish and part of it, i think it's the school system in general not set up the same way that the businesses are which is sad and i hope that there's a shift because their businesses are clearly seeing the benefits of providing those supports and empowering people to their strengths and it would be nice to trickle down into the schools as well that's right the first time it hit me i was in a class junior high class and it was a science class and i was there visiting and co-teaching with somebody and and it was an eighth grade boy and he was walking around the class touching every surface every wall every you know book on the every bookshelf he walked by he ran his fingers right over my face you know just kept on going and the class was on heat and expansion but the teacher was still taking attendance and nothing had really started and i picked up the textbook and saw that it had hot air balloons and i said oh you know anybody out there know how a hot air balloon works and nobody really responded and all of a sudden as he passed by and ran his fingers over my face again <laughs> I heard the fire heats the gas, the gas expands, the gas gets lighter, the balloon floats. The fire heats the gas, he just kept on going over you saying this chanting. And meanwhile, like nobody else is engaged in the science conversation. He's totally got it right on the money. And so I tried to engage him and I was like, "Caleb, you know, can can you say that what what are you saying there?" and the minute i tried to engage him his paraprofessional sweet woman not you know no fault of her own was concerned that she wasn't doing her job so she ushered him to his seat kind of you know sat him down in his seat which of course he got frustrated started stimming he got out his book and he just drew pictures in his book the whole class and never engaged in the conversation and he didn't expansion I thought what a waste for him for the rest of the class who could have learned from him because he had it you know and that was one of those aha moments for me that if 
if we're not tapping into that, we're really losing something. Oh, that breaks my heart. I can think of so many examples from my own experiences in education, watching things like that happen. And it's just heartbreaking. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And leading into that, I wanted to know what advice you would give to educators who are trying to start the process, if they're not already, of really making sure that their neurodivergent students are supported and empowered in their classroom. So first of all, it's huge. And I don't pretend to have all the answers because <laughs> nothing's going to work for everybody. And so, but I can recommend some things that I've seen. So one is computational thinking. And whether it's through impact or not, you know, I think there's just a lot of power in that structured, explicit problem solving. Project-based learning. I worked in the school that I was just talking about for about eight years, co-teaching with a couple of teachers. And we put in project-based learning. And this was a really high need school in a lot of different ways. Project-based learning when done with structured supports and executive function supports and a lot of intention liberated the teachers from all the stuff that kept them from supporting their kids, like lecturing and, you know, worksheets and allowed them to be circulating going, okay, tell me about your project and listening to the kids passionately and grading what the kids could do, not what they couldn't do. But an important thing was that the assessment was not on a final product. It was on the process throughout the semester. It was a constant, ongoing, formative and summative assessment and support and just all the things that you learn through project-based learning, all the you know executive function and motivation and agency and autonomy. And then game-based learning has been very useful in engaging kids what is necessary is what we call bridging, which is you can't just let them learn in the game. That's implicit. Mm -hmm. So you need to bridge that to the explicit learning you want. We developed physics games where there were balls of different mass floating around. They had to exert different forces on them to be able to get them to do what they wanted to do. And we found they were going, oh, you know, this one, you got to really hit on this one. And they knew Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration, but they were doing it in terms of the ball and the goal. So the teacher needs to come over and say, okay, you got that? Now, let me tell you what Newton said about that. And that this is how that works in another context and in other ways. And we found with our physics games in high school that when that bridging happened with those games, we were able to reach more learners and they did better on physics assessments than comparable classes. So those are three strategies that I would talk about. Computational thinking, project-based learning, and game-based learning that are rich for reaching the learners, but they all must come with explicit executive function supports. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great advice. I was huge into project-based learning and I remember trying it like my first year teaching and I didn't have the structure and it was like chaos everywhere. It was, <laughs> and then with the structure, it was so much better. And you could see how much the kids feel like they're learning and how they really feel so proud of what they've done. And like, my students always wanted to present, like, they were like, I want to show my final product. Like I worked so hard on it. I want everybody to see it because they're just so proud of what they've accomplished. So I think that's really solid advice, those three things. And I hope that our education listeners will 
take those three considerations to heart when planning. <laughs> <laughs> we had a project when I was at the school I was working with up here. We did project-based learning for, I think, two years. And then one of the teachers, the grade nine teacher, thought, you know, these kids have already seen it for a couple of years. We need to do something different. And that year, there was going to be a new junior high proposed for their neighborhood. And we knew the site that they were thinking about. So he took them down to the site. They walked around, they measured it, they assessed it. They did a needs assessment for their whole school and their community. And they together built a scale of a new school. Everybody had a different location. Then there was a project managers who put them all together. And we got the city councilors and school board members and a local architect to come to their presentations. And it was really, and this is a very marginalized school in an interesting neighborhood. <laughs> so, so that giving kids that agency and that autonomy and sense of identity in the process is really powerful. It makes all the difference. I love that example. It's a perfect example of community coming together, the authentic learning because it's applicable to their lives right now. It's something that's actually happening. It's, right. there's, there's so much going on that's beneficial there. Of course, the school hasn't been built yet, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much, Jody, for being here with us today to talk about InFact, to talk about all the work and the research and the projects that are being done and just about neurodiversity and STEM in general. I really appreciate you sharing. Well, thank you. And I hope people, if they're interested, will look it up InFact at turk.edu. And that's T-E-R-C especially if there's anybody who wants to get involved in our research, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new, gave you a new idea, or showcased a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.